Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. All right, well, good morning, everybody. Thank you, Wes. Um, I guess I need to stop posting what I'm going to wear on Sunday morning on my Instagram account, because obviously you're, this is getting a little weird. This is happening way too much. And see, here's the thing is that what you forget is that you speak first, but I get to speak last. So while your pants are purple, my pants are Merlot. And that's the difference between me and you. That's just it right there, okay? So <laughs> somebody had to point it out, though. It does look kind of ridiculous. I mean, who wears purple pants? Two guys wearing purple pants on the same day speak right after one another. But here we are. Welcome to week two of our new series called A Perfect Union. If you joined us last week, you know that our series, we are going through a series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And I introduced the series last week, so if you haven't had a chance to listen to that message from last week, you can find it on our website. You can also go onto our Facebook page, and you can see the entire video of the entire service. So you get to see the music and everything that we did last week, which was awesome. So I would suggest doing that. But that'll be a great thing for you to go to to start with. Now, we are going to do a little bit of a part two of an introduction today as we start to get into the text of the Sermon on the Mount. But last week, what we talked about and how we initially approached this is that we approached this from the standpoint of realizing that the season that we are going to, as tough as this year has been for us, 2020 has been all kinds of full of a bunch of stuff that we've had to go through and work through, difficulties and issues and COVID and all the rest, we are now approaching a season that is promising to give a little bit more conflict to our uh, to our country at least, right? We, and whenever we enter into an election season, it's going to naturally cause us to be a little bit on edge because there's all kinds of conflict that goes on that comes with it. Now, as I mentioned last week, that, as a result, a lot of us are feeling maybe afraid or even angry or confused about how we should engage this as Christians. And so I felt like going through the Sermon on the Mount and having a chance to hear Jesus' words from what he says in these chapters, Jesus' most well-known sermon, is going to help bring us to a place where we can help block out some of those other voices that are speaking at us all the time and trying to convince us what to think and what to do, and to really sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to what Jesus has to say. Because if we're feeling confused, if we're feeling fearful, if we're feeling angry to the extent that it's causing us to be unsettled, those things don't come from the voice of Jesus. And so we're going to look at that. And as we do, if last week was the 30,000-foot view of this series, today we're going to dive a little bit closer. We're going to go right into the text of the Sermon on the Mount, starting in Matthew chapter 5 this morning. And before we do, though, I had a, I had a friend who said to me this past week after listening uh, to the sermon last week, uh, he said, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is pretty straightforward, so I'm interested to see how you're going to interject politics into it. Because as I mentioned last week, we're going to approach this from a kind of a political uh, perspective, and, if that's, and maybe you felt the same way. So what I, what, what I realized when he said that is we maybe need to explain a little bit what we mean by the term politics. And essentially what we mean by this, and I, I know that when we talk about politics, all kinds of connotations come to mind. Right? We have all kinds of different words or phrases that might come immediately to mind when I say the word politics, especially in the culture and the, the, uh, the climate that we're living in right now. In fact, in some ways, I'd like to just ask everybody, if we had the time and the opportunity, to just tell me, everybody in the room, what do you think of when you think of the word politics? We could put them all on a whiteboard, and then we could look at all the different ways uh, in which we process this. But I'm assuming for the most part that most of those words might not be positive. We might actually begin to think left and right politics, progressive, liberal, conservative. Maybe we think about things like policies. Maybe we just think about the fight that goes on in the conflict and we're anxious about that. Maybe we've lost confidence in politics. Maybe we have too much confidence in politics. But whether, whatever you think about it, politics is, it, it, it essentially is different today a lot than probably what, what, what really 
the, the general definition or the general understanding of politics is, because it's really a simple definition. In reality, the definition and function of politics, if we can pull back all the rest of it, is this. It describes a way of ordering things in our world. It's very simple. In fact, it goes all the way back to the creation narrative in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God tells Adam and Eve, after he's created this creation, to work and to keep the creation. They're to preserve it, they're to, they're to gain provision from it, and they're also to represent God's image in creation. Then he also says to them in Genesis 1, verse 28, exercise dominion over creation, which again was to represent God's authority over creation and to be image bearers in the creation around them. Now, the way that they had to do this, moving from Adam and Eve throughout human civilizations, is that for people to be able to do this, one of the ways that they had to do it was to form societies. And these societies were formed upon laws and rules, whether they were written, whether they were formal or informal, and those laws and rules are essentially the politics and the policies that guided those communities. Now, fast forward and we get to the book of Exodus, and we see that God delivers his people from Egypt, and he establishes them as a nation, he gives them a land, and then he gives them law. From Mount Sinai forward, uh, Exodus chapter 19 and 20, as we move forward, God is telling them, this is how you're to live, which ordered their practice, it ordered everything that had to do with religious, ethical, social, and even economic lives of Israel. And so as God said, you are my nation, you're my holy nation, you are the ones who are to represent who I am, these are the laws that you're supposed to live by represented by the Ten Commandments and then the Mosaic Law. Now, we tend to look at those laws sometimes as just kind of these moral things that God wants us to do in order to please him, but in reality, those weren't given to Israel for that purpose. God had already delivered them, he had already saved them, he had already given them a name, and then he establishes them in the land and he says to them, you're to live this way because this is a representation of my character to the rest of the world. And those were the beginnings of Israel's politics, if you will, because these were the laws and the policies that they were to live by. And it promoted justice, it promoted right living, it promoted, it promoted holiness in the land, it promoted things like protecting the poor and the vulnerable, it gave justice to the oppressed, it even protected the foreigner who was, around, who was among Israel during that time. And all of these things came from God's character, and it was God's character that these politics or these laws or these policies were meant to reflect. So as we get to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, there are a lot of parallels to Israel's political calling in the world originally in this way. One is the purpose of the sermon. It was meant to represent God's people living out God's kingdom and God's purposes in the world. As we looked at from Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus begins his ministry, he announces the kingdom of God has arrived, it is here at hand, and that he is the king, he gathers together his disciples, much like God gathering Israel together, and then he brings them to this place, by the way, it's a mountain again, that, God br or that Jesus brings them to, and he begins to instruct them on this is the way you are to live, and it comes from the Sermon on the Mount here. There are a lot of parallels here. I even choose to include the parallel of Jesus being on the mountain kind of pictures Moses being on Mount Sinai, but where Moses had to come down and give the law, Jesus remains on top of the mountain, almost as a symbol of his divine authority in giving these words. And so as we see the Sermon on the Mount, there are parallels here, right? And so this is not, I don't think this is interjecting politics into this. I think this is a way of Jesus saying this is the politics of the kingdom, and this is how we read it. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 then says this, as we begin into this. This is the setting for Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, and we'll stop right there, because we're going to get to what he says here in just a minute. 
But in its purest sense, again, of what politics is supposed to be, this creates for us a world where we're supposed to live according to a certain way based on values that we believe are good and right for all people. Every political policy, every law that's ever been written into effect comes from somebody who believes that this is going to benefit somebody or this is a good and right thing to do and will benefit society. Now, that's not the case in every situation because, of course, there is evil and brokenness in our world, but for the most part, those are the ideas behind laws. And when we look at what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, what we see is that he's telling us that his kingdom, what it means to live in his kingdom under the perfect king, is to love God, love our neighbor, and love the world with our politics. So the things that we vote for, the things that we endorse, the things that we, maybe if we have the opportunity to write something into law, that they should be doing those things. And certainly the way that we engage in the political process should represent that. Now, in proclaiming himself as king with a kingdom, Jesus is saying here that he is sovereign. That his kingdom doesn't bow down to any other kingdom. That as king, he doesn't bow down to any other political figure. In fact, what he is doing is developing something completely unlike any other political structure or political ideology that the world has ever known. And what we might not realize when we read this is that when Jesus is preaching this sermon, he is preaching it in a very politically, a very, very politically charged culture. What was going on in the first century under Roman rule, the Jews, were there, the Jews were there under Roman rule, and that environment was extremely politically charged. And we may not realize this, but when we see what Jesus choose, who he chooses as his 12 disciples, there's something amazing that happens here. The gospel writers make a point to tell us that among Jesus' 12 disciples, he chooses a wide range of Jewish men from all different backgrounds and maybe even all different political perspectives. But in particular, he chooses two men that the gospel writers identify for us as Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. It's amazing to see this because look, and that might not mean a whole lot to us as we say it today, but back back in that time, it meant that this was a very shocking kind of group of people that Jesus was getting together. Was somebody, because to pair somebody like Matthew the tax collector with Simon the zealot was to invite really political volatility and even possibly political violence into the group of these 12 men. To give you an idea, a zealot like Simon was described, and by the way, the gospel writers don't identify every disciple by like their political persuasion or their position. Right? It's not like the gospel writers say, here's Peter and Andrew and Peter. Here's Peter the fisherman and Andrew the fisherman. And here's Bartholomew the blacksmith. I don't know if Bartholomew was a blacksmith, but if he was, they don't say, here's Bartholomew the blacksmith. They say, here's Simon the zealot and here's Matthew the tax collector. For a reason, what they're pointing out here is that these are two guys that couldn't be further apart on the political spectrum in this hugely politically charged environment. The zealots were considered to be People were considered to be people who were freedom fighters for the Jews, but they were considered to be terrorists for the Roman, by the, from a Roman perspective. Because a zealot believed that somebody, that, that uh, was somebody who believed in the overthrow at Rome, of Rome at all costs. In other words, because the Jews were being oppressed by the Romans, at any and all costs, the zealots believed we needed to overthrow Roman influence. And if that means violence, then that means violence. That's how far we are committed to going. And by the time Jesus comes along, a lot of the zealots were ready for a violent revolution against Rome. Now Matthew, who's a tax collector, is on the opposite side. He's a Jewish man who is actually working for the Roman government. And the Jewish people hated the tax collectors because the tax collectors represented the authority of Rome. They were Jewish men who went and collected the taxes on behalf of Rome that kept the Jewish people in financial and economic oppression. And so they hated them. They were pictured as ones who were traitors. And certainly zealots hated tax collectors. 
They saw him as oppressors. They saw him as traitors. They saw him as the last people they would want to associate with. And if a violent revolution was coming, they'd probably be the first person that they would try to kill. And yet Jesus gets these guys together, not only just in a room together, but he gets them together in this group of 12 men, and he says, you are going to be this new community that I'm forming, and you're going to love one another as brothers and love one another as a family. It was shocking and scandalous, to say the least. And so when Jesus gets these group of guys together, and as he begins teaching this Sermon on the Mount, and as he proclaims himself as king, you have to imagine that in some ways Matthew and all the other disciples, including Simon the Zealot, were thinking to himself, which side is Jesus going to land on? Is he going to is he going to land on the side of the Romans, or is he going to land on the side of the zealots and the Jews who want to overthrow Rome? And it's not only the question that these two guys were wondering, but almost everyone who came into contact with Jesus was probably wondering this during his ministry. As contentious as, contentious as our current setting seems politically, that political setting for the Jews was about 10 times as charged as ours is today. I mean, think about this. This is a Jewish people who are oppressed and reminded day after day that they are subjects of a brutal Roman empire. The thing that's on the, the forefronts of their minds all day long is how are we going to get out of this and who is going to deliver us politically or militarily. And of course, all of these groups who were gathered around Jesus during the Sermon of the Mount involved all these different people from different perspectives. We had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, all who had their own perspectives and platforms on what they should do about this political issue with Rome. And we see this reflected in the question that prompts Jesus' well-known response that we mentioned last week, where Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to God what is God's. You know the question that Jesus has asked at that point? It's later on in his ministry, and the Sadducees and Pharisees, who, by the way, were on the opposite side of the political spectrum, came together to try to trap Jesus. And they asked him this question that was a politically charged question, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And what they were trying to do was they recognized that Jesus was really popular at this point, and they were trying to separate the Jews along political lines. And they figured if we can just nail Jesus down on one side or the other of this political debate, then the other side of the Jewish people will revolt against him and they will not follow him and, all the, and then his popularity will fall apart. And so they go to him and they ask this question. And Jesus responds with the answer that he does in a masterful display of essentially saying, look, I'm not going to put my endorsement behind Caesar or behind the Jewish revolutionaries. In reality, I have another option. I don't bow down to any political, either political perspective. I give my allegiance to the kingdom of God. And that's what he calls those who are listening to as well, to him as well. And look, if I can be honest, I resonate with Jesus in this way. I can kind of connect with Jesus in this way. Because I feel like any time that I personally talked about politics during any time that I've been a pastor, I feel, I, feel like, I feel like people are asking the same question of me. Like, is he a Republican or is he a Democrat? Some will just flat out ask that of me. In fact, I heard somebody last week say that they were trying to, when I was talking about conservatives and progressives, they were trying to see how I was using pronouns to see if I said we when I use conservatives or progressives to try to figure out, okay, which side is he really on? I think it's, it's just been the nature of like, which side are you on? Are you on my side or are you on the other side? And what Jesus says is that we should be on the side of the kingdom. And that's the difference here. That's what's happening here. And so what I want to do is, as we engage this, as we begin uh, to read through what we know as the Beatitudes, which is the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, I want us to imagine this for a minute. Let's pretend that there are no political ideologies in our world. None of those things exist. So there's no conservatism, there's no progressivism, there's no liberalism, no nationalism, no socialism, no isms of politics, if you will. And if we were starting a society from scratch just by listening to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, what would that look like? 
And, as, and so we're going to go through the Beatitudes here in just a minute. And as we do, I want to step line by line through this and talk about what each one means. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read one at a time. I'm going to read them slowly. And what I want you to do as you're thinking through this is ask yourselves this question. If we, if we really took Jesus seriously on what he's calling us to do in this passage, how would our lives change individually? And then I want you to think about how would the church change the world if we really started to live like this? What would it look like to do these things? And I want you to have just really an honest conversation with God about it. Even pray a little bit as we're going through this. God, what does this look like? What, what has to change in my life in order for my life to look more like this? And if those things change, and I'll ask a question, a diagnostic question at the end, what would, it, what would the church look like if these things were embodied by all of us, okay? So, starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 2 again, And Jesus opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know, a person who is poor in spirit is a person who is humble and dependent on God. It's a person who realizes their need for God, that they are spiritually or maybe even emotionally bankrupt. They may even be materially needy, which many of the people who are in this crowd were, and they are dependent upon God to provide for their daily essentials. Whether it's spiritually, emotionally, or physically, this person gives up self-sufficiency and self-sovereignty and is instead humble, recognizing their need for God and their dependence upon Him to provide and to deliver them. This is the starting point of Jesus' sermon because it's the starting point for the entry into the kingdom. We have to come to God realizing that there is nothing that we bring, not our self-righteousness, not our own efforts to provide for ourselves, that everything that we have is dependent upon God providing for us. It's a humble dependence. Jesus says, it's these who will have the kingdom of God, which reminds us, as Jesus says, the kingdom is here and has arrived in Jesus, and also, as Jesus would later say to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world, and that the people who are part of the kingdom are those who recognize that there's an upside-down nature to what we often expect the kingdom of God to look like, and this is what Jesus is bringing to us. So what would it look like to have a church who doesn't just celebrate our political and financial independence, but who would find more to celebrate in our dependence upon God. Then Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. From out of the poverty of spirit, those who mourn, mourn for all kinds of different reasons. They mourn for the brokenness in this world. They mourn for their own sin. They mourn for how that sin and brokenness affects other people and breaks justice in this world. They mourn for those, uh, they mourn for the evil in this world that is prevalent everywhere. They're not self-satisfied, they're not self-sufficient, but they know that they have to find their need and comfort from Jesus. And as they find comfort from Jesus, they become people who provide true comfort to others from the comfort that they have received from their king. What would it look like to have a church full of people who are comforting one another with the comfort that they find from God? And then Jesus continues, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is as much of a cautionary statement against our preference, typically for the approach of a person who is brash, who is aggressive, who wants to dominate and subdue others in order to build his own kingdom, so to speak. It's a rebuke to the sovereign individualism that permeates our culture often. The meek are the people who do not assert themselves, but they look to serve the interests of others. It doesn't mean they're weak, 
because Jesus describes himself as meek. But it means that they use their strength, their influence, and yes, their freedom, not to serve their own flesh and not to serve their self-interest, but in humility to serve others. And in a twist to the continued rebuke, Jesus says, these are the ones who will inherit the earth. The ones who are brash and assertive and aggressive, who think that they want to inherit the earth, that's their ultimate goal. Ultimately, the ones who will inherit the earth are the ones who are meek like Jesus, who serve others primarily, who are the humble servants following the one who is the ultimate suffering servant king, who is Jesus. What would it look like to have a church where people were always looking to serve the interests of others, not demanding their own way, but looking out for others instead? Then Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We all hunger and thirst for something, and not in the sense of desiring food and water, but it's what our spirits and what our souls really hunger for. Those who are meek and those who serve the world around them have a hunger for righteousness to be done. They they have a hunger for the kingdom of God to take root in the world so that justice and peace and righteousness and holiness will be everywhere they look. In other words, their desire, for, their desire is for Jesus' kingdom above all other kingdoms of the world. Their desire is that God's presence and glory would fill the earth. And as Jesus says here, they will be satisfied. They will be filled because one day the whole earth will be filled with God's glory. But for the person who is hungry for God's righteousness, it drives everything they do. They want to see the righteousness and justice of God everywhere around them in God's creation. What would it look like to have a church where everyone is hungering for God's righteousness in this way. Then Jesus said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You know, mercy is rightly defined as the reality that God gives us what we don't deserve. In other words, he gives us blessing, he gives us forgiveness, he gives us grace, and he gives us mercy despite what we may deserve because of our sin. And so those who are merciful do the same thing towards others. They don't retaliate when they've been wrong. They don't look for an eye for an eye justice in their lives. They are kind towards those who are hurting and needy, and they aren't primarily focused on what that person did to get themselves in that situation because they made that bad decisions or whatever it may be. They recognize they've made bad decisions and continue to make bad, bad decisions, and they sin against God, and yet God gives them mercy anyway. And so they're called to give others mercy. They are the ones who show mercy because they know the mercy of God. And they have a driving gratitude and a humility for what God has done for them in Jesus. What would it look like to have a church full of people who were merciful, who didn't demand retaliation or personal eye-for-eye justice, but were looking to give mercy even towards those who don't deserve it? Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. People with a pure heart are people who are content with God being their singular focus and his kingdom being their treasure. They don't use God to get something else that they want, like his blessings, his provision, money, favor, health, a new job. They are pure in their motivations because their desire is to know God and to treasure his ways and his kingdom above all others. These are the ones who Jesus says get to see God because they get to see the reality of who God is from relationship because it's what they really desire. What would it look like to have a church full of people whose singular focus and treasure was Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. A peacemaker is someone who lives in a context of conflict and yet works to bring healing of divisions between people and between people and God. They do it from the gospel, but they want to see a wholeness of loving God, loving neighbors, and loving the world in every way. 
And Jesus says these are the kinds of people who will be sons of God, who make up the household of God, because, of course, as he gives us peace through his sacrifice on the cross, as he makes peace between us and God, we are reconciled with our Heavenly Father, and we are reconciled with one another in the household of God. It's peace that brings us together. At this point, as Jesus was saying this, he might have even been looking at Matthew and Simon and saying, look, this is the peace that I am bringing, the one who has come to heal these divisions, the one who has come to heal this hatred and this murderous rage. He is the Prince of Peace because he makes peace between us and God and one another. What would it look like to have a church full of peacemakers? People who work to see that people everywhere are experiencing the peace of God not just those who we, dis- who we agree with, but even those who we disagree with. And how do we bond together with the peace of God? And then finally, Jesus says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is a fitting way to end this section because I think one thing you may realize is that if you lived exactly this way that Jesus is calling us to live, it will bring difficulty, suffering, sacrifice, and persecution into your life. If you choose not to live for yourself primarily, not to protect yourself primarily, to provide your own comfort and security, if you choose to prioritize others and live in this upside-down way, if you choose not to demand personal justice when you're wrong and to forgive those who are wrong even when they offer no apology, you will have to sacrifice and you will probably suffer. You'll also be persecuted if you fail to go along with the stream of culture and if you choose to stand against certain things that are wrong but that are popular in the culture around you. And that happens both inside and outside the church. But Jesus is reminding us here as this section comes to a close that great is your reward in heaven. Those things are temporary. The persecution, the suffering, the difficulty that you experience are temporary. What really counts is the eternal. And not just that will come one day, but you get to see the beauty of the kingdom taking root in your life today. And that in the end, we are foolish to grab and to fight for what is temporary at the cost of what is eternal. What would it look like to have a church who is focused on what is eternal as people who are faithful in the face of persecution, as people who are faithful to challenges to our faith? Now look, as you read through just this first section of the Sermon on the Mount, this is just the introduction to all that's coming later. If you know the Sermon on the Mount, you know there are some things that you look at and you're like, is Jesus really mean for us to do this? I mean, there's some high calling in a lot of this. Is it meant for us to really follow this, or is just this kind of super spiritual way of just kind of Jesus describing the ideal life, and we can't really reach that, so we just rely on God's grace, and that's what it teaches us? Well, yes, it teaches us about God's grace, but at the same time, I do believe that Jesus is calling us to live this way. Early believers called themselves the way. It was a way of living that reminded them that they lived differently than the world around them. And we know from church history that they relied a lot on what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount to define what it meant to be a part of a way and to live this way. And they didn't seem to think that Jesus was exaggerating. In fact, they took Jesus' words to heart at the end of the sermon in Matthew chapter 7. When Jesus says, those who build their their, their lives on my words and do them are are like the wise man who built his house on the rock. Sky Jatani, who wrote a a recent book uh, on the Sermon on the Mount called What If Jesus Was Serious, talks about in that book about teaching a class at his church about the Sermon on the Mount. And the first thing that he asked, he was full of of a bunch of people who had been in church for a long time, had read the Sermon on the Mount over and over again, 
And he asked him, the first question on the first day that he asked him was, do you believe that what Jesus says in here, he actually expects us to live out? And if you do, raise your hand, and no one raised their hands. And they began to explain, and they gave all kinds of reasons why. No one can live like this. Well, Jesus is just showing us God's, how we need God's grace. He was illustrating what a perfect life looks like and how none of us can attain it. And then one participant spoke up and said, Jesus' commands aren't practical. If we took him seriously, people would walk all over us. Loving your enemy, turning the other cheek, and giving to anyone who asks is foolish. That's no way to get ahead, let alone survive in a dangerous world. And after they were done talking, Sky responded this way. Was Jesus a fool for following these ideas himself? After all, by loving his enemies, he ended up on a Roman cross. I'm glad I wasn't in that classroom when he said that. But then he continues and he says this, My experience is that our society is hungry for precisely the kind of integrity, gentleness, kindness, and love that Jesus reveals in this sermon. We who claim to be Jesus' followers and seek a life shaped by his kingdom hold the antidote to the division and anger that is poisoning our culture. If we want the culture to take Jesus more seriously, maybe we should try it first. That one stings a bit. After that, if the culture still rejects Christians and our message, at least it'll be for the right reason. Look, I love that last part there. As Christians, you know, especially American Christians, we often claim that the culture around us is trying to marginalize us, trying to take away our faith, trying to poison our children's faith, and that they're rejecting Jesus because they are rejecting us. And that's certainly true. All those things are going on. I'm not blind to those things. But I will say this. What if the, we have to ask our question, ourselves this question from time to time. What if the world is not actually rejecting Jesus? They're rejecting us precisely because we don't look like Jesus. That's a question we have to continue to deal with and ask ourselves all the time. And if we come to this conclusion that we are really supposed to live this way in Jesus' kingdom, we're struck by this grand vision of how exactly does it look and what exactly is it supposed to do? How can someone in the end live like this? Look, this is an invitation the two groups who were there in front of Jesus were Jesus' disciples as well as the crowds. And what Jesus seems to be doing is instructing his disciples that this is the way to live. It's an invitation to live in this new way called the kingdom, and you have access to it because you are blessed by God. Not you do these things so that you can be blessed. You are in a state of blessing by God, so now you can live this way. It's a get-to thing rather than a have-to thing. And then he's speaking to the crowds, those who are not fully committed to Jesus yet, those who might be skeptical about who he is, those who are maybe even opponents uh, to Jesus' message and his ministry. And he's inviting them to see the vision the same way. I'm inviting you into this kingdom. It's better than anything else that you'll ever find out there, and this is what it looks like to be in the kingdom of God. Michael Wilkins says this, While the Sermon on the Mount does indeed articulate an idea that is impossible for fallen humans to attain. It is an ideal that the disciples will strive to live out under the grace of God and the power of the Spirit in their everyday world. The ideal life that Jesus lives and teaches becomes the goal that all disciples, anyone who calls themselves a Christian, are to strive toward in this life. The emphasis in the Sermon on the Mount will be an inside-out transformation. Jesus will continually go to inner motivation, not external performance. The inner life will naturally transform the outer life. The heart that treasures the kingdom of heaven above all else will be the starting point for the transformation of the entire life. And see, that last part there is so key. The starting point for the transformation of the entire life is a heart that treasures the kingdom of heaven above all else. Now look, as you read through this list, you may look at your life and think to yourself, I'm not, I'm not very good at being humble. 
I'm not good at being very, uh, very faithful in the midst of persecution. It's just enough for me to be able to open my Bible every once in a while and, and pray and maybe come to church on Sunday. I really struggle with all these areas. Look, I think the key to this is that you don't have to get to a place where you feel like I can do all of these things and I've conquered them and this is something that I live out faithfully. But all of us can get to a point where we can ruthlessly decide to treasure the kingdom of God above all things. We may not be able to do all these things right now, but the starting point is to ruthlessly treasure in our hearts the kingdom of God above all things. And I don't care who you are, you can do that. You can start at that point right there. And I think the point, the biggest thing that we need to do to begin with is to eliminate all other competitors to the throne of our heart and to ruthlessly eliminate those from our hearts and our minds. And with the time that we have left, I want to focus again on what I feel like is one of the biggest dangers for us right now, especially as we approach this season that's upcoming. I mentioned last week that modern-day politics has gotten to a point where political ideologies have become much like religions. In other words, they provide a doctrine based on your political ideology. There is a platform that you have to fall in line with or you're out, complete with complete with those who are lords and teachers and politi as political leaders and pundits of a party. You either agree with everything we agree on or you're not considered to be fully a part of our party. Our party. And we're getting to the, yeah, I mean, the, the <laughs> Freudian slip right there, right? And we're getting to a place where those extremes are getting forced to the ends. Secondly, politics provide an identity to such a degree that many people often pick their friends or associates based on the politics that they agree on. And they rarely associate with those for a long period of time that they disagree with politically. Third, a community. And a community not so much that it's us together changing the world, voting for right politics, but more of an us versus them mindset. And we need to win at all costs, and really what's more important is that they need to lose at all costs. And then fourth, they often promise a salvation, that there is an evil out there that only my political party or my political figure can save me from. And all these things come from a wider narrative that each political ideology believes about the world, what we were created for, and where we long to be. Now here's the thing. With the time we have left, I want to give you a quick uh, political history lesson. Now I know you didn't sign up for this on a Sunday morning, but it's going to be quick, and I believe it's, it's, it's key to understanding this. To begin with, you may or may not know this, but all of our American political ideologies come from what is known uh, as a bigger ideology called liberalism. And not liberalism in the sense that we typically use it where it's like conservatives and liberals. You may have noticed last week I used conservatives and progressives because in reality anybody who comes from this tradition, this American tradition, is actually a liberal. So we're conservative liberals or we're progressive liberals if you want to say it correctly and, and accurately. Now what this means is that all of our belief and what led to the American Revolution, what led to the Declaration of Independence, what led to the Constitution of the United States was this political belief in liberalism. The ideology of liberalism is what birthed all of these things, and what it means simply politically is that all human beings are self-directed to govern uh, ourselves in accordance with a system of law that we, have that we have chosen for ourselves. It's built upon the idea that human beings, individual human beings, are autonomous. And so what they have, what they vote for, the government that they submit to is all based on their own free will. So everyone possesses their own property, which was a big deal back in the day, and everyone must be free to govern themselves in accordance with their own choices, provided that their own choices and their own freedoms don't interfere with somebody else's freedoms in the same society. This is what's known as a social contract. It's about as close as, 
as, uh, as liberalism gets to having a communal idea of politics. In fact, every political idea up until liberalism was more focused on the community. Liberalism elevated the individual coming out of the Enlightenment. And you can see it in the way that everything's talked about in terms of individual freedom, the sovereignty of the individual, those kinds of things. So whether someone identifies as a Republican, a Democrat, or a Libertarian, all of them come from this same tree. And I brought a little simple diagram for you this morning to kind of illustrate what this looks like right now. So let's, let's throw that tree up there and you can see this, if it's, if it's there. There you go. It's kind of a simple definition. But you can see liberalism gives birth to all of these different other isms that we see that are political ideologies in our country right now. Now, socialism is kind of like falling off the tree, more like democratic socialism is probably more accurate in that case. But the differences you see here come from the question of what role does government play in the social contract? So everybody believes here in the, the autonomy of the individual, but how does the government then enforce this social contract that we've agreed to, as, uh, to enforce these kind of freedoms and autonomy for all people? So what this looks like, for example, is this. Let's ask this question, what do we do about the poor and disenfranchised among us? We're told in Scripture we're supposed to care about the poor, those who are needy, and those kinds of things. On the conservative or libertarian side, many will say that it's not the government's role necessarily to take care of those who are, beyond, uh, who, who, are, who are in need beyond maybe some basic necessities. There is a reliance on the free market to provide all the opportunities that someone will need to get a job, to raise their families, and to get to a path of economic freedom. So where welfare is needed, it relies on the altruism of the individual to give to charities, to give to people in their communities, and those kinds of things. But it should never be forced upon people by the government with higher taxes, expanded welfare, or the redistribution of wealth. On the progressive side, on the other hand, even as far as the democratic socialist position, there's a belief that the cards are stacked against some people especially people who have experienced generational poverty and where it's much more difficult, if not impossible, for them to have the same opportunities as their more wealthy counterparts who grow up in a different demographic. They would likely argue from the standpoint, again, of the freedom of the individual as well. They would say that that person who has disadvantages is not free to live in the way that others are free because of the systems that may oppress them. So the government's role then in that case is to help balance out the freedoms for all people, even if that means higher taxes on the rich, things like redistribution of wealth, expanded social services, and changes to the criminal justice system. So what I want you to see with this example, and there are many other examples we could go to as well, is that in most of these cases, what the, that these, these ideologies are coming from the same starting point of the freedom of the individual, just different perspectives and ways of getting there. And some may be more practical. I'm not going to argue which one's more practical, which one works better, all those kinds of things. I'm just saying that over the course of time, this is where this has developed in our country. We all started here, but when you, when you decide, okay, how does this work in practice, then you have to make decisions about what this actually looks like and what role the government has to play in it. Now, here's the big twist in the story. As we still have that tree up there, liberalism what really the entire American political system is based upon is not the biblical narrative. Liberalism is based upon the autonomy of the individual. And as great as a system it is, it's probably one of the best systems we could ever have in human history. And before Jesus comes back, it's probably the best one that we could, at least in my opinion, that we could be a part of. But at the same time, the kingdom of God relies upon the autonomy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we look at this, what we have to realize is that these systems that we may tend to give so much religious fervor and commitment to at times 
are things that are here today, temporary, but they are gone tomorrow because they are run by human beings and expected of human beings to be sovereign and in control of their environment, which in fact we are not. The only one who is sovereign, the only one who can deliver his kingdom in the way that he has promised, the only one who can bring to, 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 uh, to hope and to reality what he has promised through his kingdom is Jesus himself. And so we live in a country that gives us certain freedoms to enjoy, and that's certainly a biblical idea, that we have individual freedoms and that we have freedoms to make choices. And as long as we live in this country, we have the opportunity to vote and to participate, and to that degree we should. We should, we should honor and glorify God in this context as much as any Christian has throughout the history of the last 2,000 years politically. But one thing that we often, that we also, I think, have to think about is that the majority of the Christian church now lives outside of the United States in the world today. And so for us to say that a Christian has to follow a certain American political perspective in order to be a Christian is to ignore all the other things that are going on in the world and to ignore really what I think Jesus is calling us to here. We certainly have issues that we deal with according to the kingdom of God, and we're called to do that. But there's danger in unnaturally binding our faith with man-made political ideologies and just absorbing those into those ideologies. History has shown us that over and over again. Now, South Africa, actually, uh, the, the policy of apartheid was born out of a group of people who called themselves Christian nationalists, and that led to apartheid. Throughout the world, you'll find, you'll find Christians in Western Europe and Latin America where socialism is actually something that they practice, and they look at it from the standpoint of Christian socialism, and they say this system of government helps us to better take care of the poor. There are many of us who might cringe at that and who might think that that doesn't necessarily fit what we would like to do. And so in the U.S., we have capitalism, which drives our economy, which drives the free market. And many times, this is seen as the most Christian way of doing things. But the problem is, what we deal with, is that we can see in hindsight that just calling something Christian doesn't make it Christian. What makes it Christian is whether or not it looks like Jesus. And we have to have the integrity to be able to say that this is what the kingdom looks like and everything else is an ism. It's a man-made political ideology, human ideology, ideology that is here today and gone tomorrow. And look, I think the point we're driving at here is if many of us had the same political passion that we had for the kingdom of God, in other words, if we cared more that our neighbor doesn't know Jesus than that he's a socialist, we'd be back on the right track as far as what God is calling us to do. David Coises says this, Christianity sees Jesus Christ as the source of salvation. The ideology sees salvation coming to us through, for example, the maximization of individual freedom, the communal ownership of all wealth, the liberation of the nation from foreign rule, the submission of individuals to the general will, and so forth. You know, the American experience is less than 300 years old. As England or China or Russia might say, I have t-shirts that are older than you guys. It's still an experiment. I believe it's one of the greatest experiments in human history. But I have to say this, when I was growing up in the late 80s and 90s, America seemed to be built to last until Jesus came back. And now here we are just 20 years down uh, the road, 20, 30 years down the road, and people are already mentioning things like civil war again. Like, I don't think that's where this is going to end up. I certainly will pray that that's not where this is going to end up. 
But I bring that up because I think it illustrates the temporary nature of everything in this world. It makes us think about how quickly things can change and that there is only one thing that is eternal when it comes to kingdoms in this world. And it again highlights where the Sermon on the Mount is headed to, that we can build our lives on the sand or we can build our lives on the rock. And as difficult as this year has been for many of us, I think one thing that's come out of this that has been good is that it has exposed how much we tend to put stake in the temporary nature of this world. How much we are rooted in things like prosperity and provision and freedom that the world, uh, that the world offers us and the world promises us versus the kingdom of God who guarantees it for us. We should remember at this point that the majority of the audience who was there at the Sermon on the Mount were the poor, the disenfranchised, the meek. Those who had very little political power and very little material wealth. That didn't make them any more righteous per se, but it probably made them more ready to receive this message that Jesus was preaching because their need, their desperation was right in front of them on a daily basis. And so in the end, we're called to let Caesar have what is Caesar. Let's give God what is God's and what Caesar has no claim on, which are our hearts, the way we live, and the narrative that we choose to live out. That those who are pure in heart would purely seek the kingdom of God and its righteousness. Because what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? What does it profit a church to gain a political platform but to lose the kingdom? If we're struggling to come to terms with what this means for us as individuals or the church, the place to start is to treasure again the kingdom. Treasure that perspective that Jesus gives us here in Matthew 5, and as we continue through these next several weeks together, to continue to treasure this. Because one thing that's true, and you may have heard this said before, is that the way you really identify something that is flawed, that is counterfeit, is you get out the real thing and compare it to that counterfeit thing. And so we're going to look at the real thing over these next several weeks. And I promise, to, promise you this will, probably the, this will be the last time you see that liberalism tree, and I'm not going to go into all these ideologies again. But I felt like that was important for establishing, look, this is the comparison between what those things look like, what they promise, and what the kingdom of God actually gives us. So I want to invite the band to join us back up as we continue to worship. We're going to close out with a song. I want to pray for us this morning. Again, like we did last week, this question of allegiance. Lord, would you, would you give us a mindset that is fully allied to the kingdom of God and considers Jesus our king? And so let's pray. Father, as we come to you this morning, we admit... Um, in so many ways, as we see this list of beatitudes, we remember truly how poor in spirit, how broken we are in many cases. That even though we consider ourselves to be strong, and even though we consider ourselves sometimes to be masters of our own destiny and be in control of the things that are around us, in reality, when those things get stripped back, we realize that we are truly meek. That we are in need of your provision, Lord. We are in need, and we are completely dependent upon who it is that you are and what it is that you provide for us. And whatever that looks like for us, for each of us, Lord, I pray that these things would draw us further into your kingdom, that this vision, this uh, proclamation of the kingdom that Jesus gave 2,000 years ago would grab our hearts and would grab onto our souls. And Lord, we do thank you for being able to live in a country where we have freedoms and where we have the opportunity to live in a place where we can live out religious liberty. That's not something to take for granted. And we ask you, Lord, to give us a clear vision of what it looks like for us to engage the context in which, we are at, which we're in right now, realizing and knowing that there are many Christians throughout the world who are suffering under oppressive, oppressive regimes, 
and who, are dif- and who are finding it difficult to be able to even meet together and to express their faith as a church. And so, Lord, we ask that you would continue to sharpen both of our visions on what the kingdom is all about. The context matters, but at the same time, context in this world is not everything. Your kingdom transcends those things and gives us a future and a hope and a vision that goes beyond all political ideologies, political figures, all the kings of this earth. That one day all kings will bow down before the king of kings. And in that day, Lord Jesus, you will be celebrated and recognized as you truly are. The one who is lifted up and on high. The one who is sovereign. The one who is our creator and our Lord and Savior. And so it's in your holy, precious, kingly and royal name we pray, Lord Jesus. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Thank you again for joining us. I just remembered I forgot to welcome those who are live streaming with us. So thank you again for joining us on the live stream this morning. I want to encourage you, if you need prayer, we have prayer cards that are available in the back. We uh, spend a lot of time as a staff, as an elder team, and as a prayer team just praying through these every week. So if you fill out one of those cards, it's going to get into the right hands, and then there are going to be people who are actually praying for that prayer request. In fact, a group of people. And so we take this very seriously. So if there's anything going on in your life, anything that is going on in a family member's life, anything that you would like us to pray for, pray, pray for excuse me, we believe in the power of prayer. More than that, we believe in the God who answers prayers. And so we want to encourage you to go fill one of those out. If you can drop it in one of those uh, offering stands as you leave, then to make sure we'll get it to the right hand. So thank you guys. Go in the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.